Uh, as Kendall mentioned, uh, this is it. Uh, we have been in a series called Ask uh, now for nine weeks, and uh, this is the last Sunday uh, that we are in this series. And uh, my one hope, my heart uh, for me, but for all of us, uh, was that we would see God in the midst of the questions that we have been asking. Uh, and I hope as you look back uh, over these past few weeks, these past nine weeks specifically, uh, even if you haven't been here for every single week, that's okay. But my hope has been that you have seen God because God wants to reveal himself to us in the midst of the questions uh, that we've been asking. Now, clearly, we have not covered all of the questions that came in. And even with each question, we didn't even get to cover all that could be covered uh, with each question. Uh, but before I move on to the questions we're looking at today, I wanted to give you really two challenges or two invitations, and one would be this, keep asking. Uh, just because we're ending this series today, uh, I wanted to invite you, I wanted to encourage and challenge you, keep asking. God has more of him that he wants all of us to see, and we do get to see God in the midst of the questions that we ask. Uh, so invitation one is keep asking, but invitation two is keep asking together. Uh, God has more of him that he wants all of us to see, uh, and the beauty of learning how to ask questions together, meaning we do this in the context of community, uh, is that we can help one another actually see God together in the midst of the questions that we're all asking. So Kendall mentioned this before, but uh, we do something called groups. Uh, and over the past nine weeks, if you've been part of a group, uh, I hope, like my group, we've been having some phenomenal discussions around the questions that we're covering. So I invite you, even though this series ends today, keep asking uh, and keep asking together because God wants us to see him. He wants us to hear him uh, so that we can keep walking with him. All right, here are the questions uh, that came in today uh, or for today. Uh, should I give 10% or not? I learned yes since I became a Christian, but honestly, I've never agreed with this. Uh, I'm not against donating, uh, but are we obligated to give 10% of our income? Uh, is the idea, this is another question, is the idea of tithing 10% of your monetary income biblical and actually even relevant today? Uh, question three, how do we cultivate stewardship uh, of the resources that God has given us? Uh, so those are questions that came in uh, around the topic or the subject of money. Uh, questions four and five uh, were this. Uh, why do some churches not allow women to be ministers uh, and leaders in the church? As a woman, it makes me feel like a lesser person, uh, but I know I am just as important as any man in God's eyes, and I have just as much as I can teach to others. Uh, question five. <clears throat> what roles... Are women prohibited from holding within the church body? Are they really not supposed to be pastors and elders? Uh, I know in 1 Timothy uh, chapter 2, Paul says women are not permitted to teach, but how do we know that is a directive from God uh, to be applicable still today? Uh, was it a cultural thing of the day? Uh, if not, what differentiates that from 1 Timothy 2 verse 9, where Paul says women shouldn't adorn themselves with gold or elaborate hairstyles? Uh, I think we would all agree that uh, 1 Timothy 2.9 was a cultural thing of Paul's time. So uh, these are the questions that came in. Uh, and honestly, these are uh, questions that really deserve two messages. Uh, but when we scheduled this out, um, uh, women, the topic or the, the question surrounding women was supposed to be all of last week, and then we're going to finish with the question surrounding money this week. 
but it just didn't work out because the questions on sexuality took longer than I thought. So in many ways, uh, this questions are really two messages today, uh, but I want to do the best I can to, to answer each of them. Uh, and as I do that, uh, as I've done in the past, I wanted to share some foundational truths that will help understand and help guide us as we even seek to answer these questions. And as you listen to those questions, so much of those questions have to do with biblical interpretation. Uh, how do we actually not only understand the Bible, but how do we actually apply the Bible? Uh, there is such a thing as it was cultural for them back, you know, 1,000 or 2,000, 3,000, 4,000 years ago, but is it really still applicable for our times, our culture today? Uh, and so many of these questions are asking, how do we actually interpret the Bible, and how do we actually apply the Bible? And so I wanted to give you two foundational truths that will help us understand that. Number one would be this. This is a long run-on sentence, but all Scripture is from God, about God, so that we'd see God for our benefit and the benefit of those around us. Let me say it again. All Scripture is from God, about God, so that we'd see God for our benefit and the benefit of those around us. Second Timothy says it well. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And I wanted to emphasize in that one verse, all scripture is God-breathed. Not just parts of scripture, but all of scripture. Thus, we don't approach scripture uh, as if it's some of it's from God and some of it's from man. And the parts that we think are from God, then we're going to apply to our lives today. But the parts that we think are from man, well, those are going to be interpreted as optional. The Bible is from God so that we can see him, so that we can understand him, that we can know him, and that our lives can be lived in accordance with who he is, his character, his heart, his will, his plans. And when I say that it's for our benefit, is as we get to know God as he's revealed himself to us through his word, as 2 Timothy says, uh, we're going to be equipped to do anything and everything that God would have us do with the life that he's given. Uh, now, this is not to say that there are not hard things to understand in scripture. Clearly, there are. And so this is my second foundational point. God will give us his wisdom so that we can understand his word. So all of scripture is from God. It's about God so that we'd see God. But the second point is God is going to give us his wisdom so that we can actually understand his word. It's not just man's wisdom or our best guess at scripture. God's going to give us his wisdom. It says in 2 Peter, this is Peter, um, the apostle, the disciple Peter, it says, bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him. Paul didn't write all of the New Testament, but wrote a big chunk of the New Testament. And Peter says, he wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him. He writes the same way in all of his letters, speaking in them uh, of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand. And I'm thankful that Peter, a guy who knew Jesus and walked with Jesus and followed Jesus, looks at Paul and says, yeah, God gave him wisdom, but some of the things that he's talking about, they're just hard to understand. And then he goes on to say, which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. 
So I just wanted to encourage you, the same God who gave Paul wisdom to write, what he wrote will give you and I wisdom to understand exactly what was written. So our challenge when reading the Bible is that we must not read it through the lens of what we want the Bible to say in order to support our ideas. We don't go to the Bible and say, well, I hope I can find some verses that are going to support everything that I want to do and how everything I want it to be worked out. Rather, we approach Scripture with great humility, asking God, God, will you give me your wisdom to understand what is written so that my life can be lived in accordance with your word. So clearly, as we study the scripture and consider the scripture, yeah, we have to take a look at things like the history. We have to take a look at things like context. We have to take a look at things like the original audience and, uh, and things like that. So there's an historical application. So these are important things that we take a look at when we study uh, to understand scripture. But I wanted you to know, we have to remember Scripture, when we're considering Scripture, it's not just about having more information so that we can win debates. It's not about having more knowledge uh, so that we can figure out, well, this supports my idea, but this doesn't necessarily support my idea. Scripture, it's about transformation. So that when we consider Scripture and are asking, God, would you give me wisdom to help me understand your word so I can apply it to my life? What we're asking is, God, I want my life to be changed. I want my life to be transformed. I don't want to do just what I want. I want my life to be submitted to your word and what your word has to say. Uh, D.L. Moody said it really well in one of his sermons. He said, the Bible was not given to increase our knowledge, but to change our lives. And I love that. Uh, it does give us knowledge, specifically knowledge about God and what he is like, but the knowledge that's given to us in Scripture is for transformation, that our lives would be changed. So is it possible that we could study, we could pray, we could discuss, and still come to different conclusions about how to apply scriptures to how we live today? And here's my answer. Of course, absolutely. We can absolutely do all of those things and still come to different conclusions. But here's the key or my point. We can disagree without being divisive and rude. And that's what often happens when we're talking about tough topics like women's role in ministry and women's role in church or talking about money is that people get very divisive and get very disgusting. Uh, and I don't mean that in just a mean way, but we can have study and, and wrestle and pray and come to different conclusions, but we don't have to be divisive and we don't have to be disgusting about it. We don't have to be rude. We don't have to be mean. We can say, you know what, some of the things that we're talking about, these are secondary. Uh, and when I say something like money or women's role in ministry is secondary, I'm not saying that it's not important. It is important, but it's not primary. Primary is, how do we even know God? Can we have a relationship with God? And the Bible says, yeah, through faith in Jesus. That is primary. Secondary issues of, well, how do we live certain things out, like money, and what roles do we have, what roles do men have, what roles do women have in the church, they're important, but they're secondary. So two truths, hopefully that will help as we go on. All scriptures from God, and it's about God so that we'd see him. And the second truth, God's going to give us his wisdom so we can understand his word. So the questions, should I give the 10% or not? Uh, the idea of tithing 10% of monetary income is it biblical and actually even relevant today, and how do we cultivate stewardship? 
And I would say this, the tithe or 10%, it's absolutely biblical, specifically Old Testament. The first time we see tithe, and that just means 10%, or 10, is in Genesis 14, when Abraham meets a priest uh, that he didn't know, and his priest's name was Melchizedek. Uh, and after Melchizedek prays for Abram and blesses him, uh, Abraham's response to this priest uh, in Genesis 14, 20, then Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. He gave him a tithe or a tenth. And then after Genesis 14, we see this development of actually three different types of tithes. Number one, the first tithe, there was what was called the Lord's and the Levite's tithe. The Levites were the priests. Uh, number t- the second tithe was the festival tithe. And the third tithe was what was known as the charitable tithe. If you were to actually add up all three different tithes, it was roughly 23%. So people in the Old Testament, it wasn't about 5% or 10%. Or If they were giving three tithes, they would actually give 23% of their income away. So my question is, what was the tithe, what was it really about? Was it about just people giving their money away? What Was it more important? What was the tithe really about? My answer is this, to remind the people of God that God owned all things. The tithe was about reminding people everything that you have in your life is because God's given it to you. God is the owner of everything, and if God is the owner of everything, you're just a steward of everything that you have. Everything that he's given you, you are just a steward. King David, uh, in a few different places, is, helps us remember this. He says in First Chronicles, everything, this is a prayer, everything in the heavens and on earth, it's yours, O Lord. And this is your kingdom. We adore you as the one who is over all things. Wealth and honor come from you alone, for you rule everything. And then in a psalm, he says, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all its people belong to him. So yeah, tithing is biblical. It's absolutely biblical, but here's the question. Is tithing also a New Testament practice? It's clearly laid out in the Old Testament for people to tithe, but is tithing also a New Testament practice? My answer would be no. Tithing is not something that is even talked about necessarily or mentioned uh, in the New Testament, but here is what is mentioned in the New Testament, growing in the grace of giving. Everyone in the New Testament, when we're talking about money, specifically Jesus, specifically Paul, talks about growing in the grace of of giving. So the New Testament has so much to say about money, but if I was going to sum up uh, as best I could what New Testament says about money, I wrote it down in my journal like this. The love of money leads to all sorts of evil, but generous giving helps you and others see a generous God. The love of money is going to lead to all sorts of just sin and evil, but generous giving helps you and helps other people see a generous God. This is what Paul says in Timothy. People who long to be rich fall into temptation and are trapped by many foolish and harmful desires that plunge them into ruin and destruction. This is what the love of money does. For the love of money, it's the root of all kinds of evil. And some people craving money have wandered from the true faith and pierced themselves with many sorrows. This is pretty emotive, pretty strong language uh, that Paul is, 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 is speaking about here in 1 Timothy. So why would the love of money lead to all sorts of evil? Why could it trash or ruin 
somebody's faith. And I love that Jesus, he actually answers this question. He says in Matthew 6, no one can serve two masters, for you're either going to hate one or love the other. You'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. In short, we serve that which we love, and if we love money, then we will be doing all that we can to get that which we think we can't find in God. Whatever it is we love, we will give ourselves wholly to. And if we love money, then we're going to do anything and everything that we can to get more of that because we think that we're going to find something in money and all that it can bring us that somehow we can't find in God. And the reality is our money, our, our finances, uh, it has a profound impact and influence on your relationship with God. I think we like to think that somehow money is money and it's kind of separate, it's private, I don't need to talk about it, and my relationship with God, it's over here. But at least in Scripture, it makes, no, the two are very much interconnected. Uh, Randy Alcorn wrote a great book years ago called The Treasure Principle, and he said this, there's a fundamental connection between our spiritual lives and how we think about and handle money. We may try to divorce our faith and our finances, but God sees them as inseparable. So if the love of money leads to all sorts of evil and can really trash our faith, well, how do we fight that? How, how do we combat that? And honestly, how I'm going to answer this question is really also answering the question of stewardship. Uh, if everything that I have was given to me by God and he owns it all, how do I grow in stewardship? And I have two words for you. Be generous. How do I combat the love of money that I'm not going to be pursuing money and serving money and thinking about money? The answer is be generous. How do I grow in being a steward of everything that God's given me? The answer is be generous. Be generous with all that which God has given you. And just so you know, everything that you have in your life has been given to you by God. Not just your money, but everything he's given you. Your time, your talents, your treasures, all of those things are gifts that God has given to you that he has entrusted you to steward, to be faithful with. Uh, and why has he done that? Because he wants to use the things in your life that he's given and trusted to you so that you could bless others, so that others would see how generous God is. Um, it, uh, in a great book, Tim Chester and Steve Timmis wrote uh, called Everyday Church, it says, if I'm a steward, then I own nothing. Everything I have is a gift, and it's been given to me uh, by God as a means of blessing others. This is the biblical doctrine of stewardship. We do not possess anything. Instead, what we have uh, has been given by God to us so that we can use it to bless others. That's stewardship, is we're generous. Everything that we have in our life is kept in an open hand. And God, if you want to use this to help someone, whether it's money, whether it's resources, whether it's time, whether it's talents that you might have, everything is to be given to you by God, but to be used by God to bless others. I think one of the things that prevents us from giving and being generous is this idea that the more I give, I'm actually losing. If I give my money, I'm actually losing my money. If I give my time, I'm losing my time. If I give of my talents and I'm somehow losing something, and I just wanted to tell you, that's not true. The biblical message is those who give actually gain. I know it's reverse in our culture, uh, but Jesus makes clear that giving is gaining. It says in Acts 20, this is Paul 
quoting Jesus. He says, you should remember the words of the Lord Jesus. It's more blessed to give than to receive. It's more blessed to give than to receive. So last question, I guess, as it relates to money before I'll move on. What does biblical giving then, what does it actually look like? Are you really supposed to just be legalistic and say, well, I have to give 10 because the Old Testament says 10. The New Testament doesn't mention that, but I just want to make sure I'm covered. Like, what is the biblical model of giving actually look like? And here's two words I'd encourage you to remember or maybe even write down of the answer. Simply this, you get to decide. You decide. Uh, It says in 2 Corinthians, you must each decide in your heart how much to give. And don't give reluctantly or in response to pressure. God loves a person who gives cheerfully. God will generously provide all you need. Then you will always have everything you need and plenty left over to share with others. I love what Paul says. You're wrestling with what to give. You decide. Ask God, God, everything I have is yours. How much of what you've given me do you want me to give away? You decide within your heart, this is what I feel compelled by God, the Spirit of God, to actually give away. And what I love about this verse is that your decision uh, to give is met with a promise. And the promise is God's going to provide for you so that you can help provide for others. But you decide. If you feel compelled by God, hey, I want to take uh, 2% of whatever income that I have, that's what I want, then great. Be faithful with 2%. If you want to give 20%, well, great. Be faithful with 20%. But the decision that God is entrusting to you is make a decision between you and the Lord of what you want to give to be a blessing to people around you. Now, for those of you who've been hanging around Genesis for any length of time, I get this question a lot of like, Gosh, it's weird that Genesis doesn't take an offering. We don't like actually pass a hat or pass a bag or pass a bucket uh, to collect money on Sundays. Uh, and that's a bit misleading. We do take a tithe. We, do, uh, we encourage people to be generous and to give. But one of the commitments that we made well before Genesis started uh, is that we never wanted money to be a stumbling block to anybody seeing how generous God is uh, through Jesus. Because uh, I know what it's like when you go to church for the first time, and you're like, man, the guy's always talking about money, just wants money, he's always passing the hat. So we said, forget it, we're not going to do that. Uh, so we didn't want it to be a stumbling block, but bigger than that, we wanted to have a testimony uh, that said, we don't need to ask for money because we're going to trust that God knows the needs of this community and how this community wants to meet the needs of other people, so God's going to compel people within this community to give. And over the past six years, God's done exactly that. And we have a testimony that God has been faithful to provide, not just for the needs of the church, but so that the church can give 20% of our income, meaning anything that comes in, 20% of that goes out the doors right away to different church plants, to different ministries, uh, to different missions, to different benevolent needs. But 20% of that goes right to other people. And we hope in time that we're not going to get stuck on 20 it would be great to go up to 30 or 40 or 50% of that. Uh, so we didn't want money to be a stumbling block, but we wanted to have a testimony. So by and large, I believe Genesis to be a generous church. But I just want you to know, we haven't arrived. We haven't arrived at the, the pinnacle of generosity as a church. It says in 2 Corinthians, but since you excel, 
since you excel in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge, in complete earnestness and in the love that we have kindled in you, see that you also excel in the grace of giving. I love Paul's challenge, exhortation to the churches. You're excelling in so many different areas, but I want you to excel in the grace of giving. Why? Because when we're generous with everything that God's given us, people who don't know God will see just how generous God is. Paul says, I want you to excel in the grace of giving. So I don't, just so you guys know, I have no idea who gives what. Uh, That's not knowledge that I have. I have no idea who is tithing, who's giving offerings. I have no idea any of that kind of stuff. But here's what I do know. Here's a state of the union for Genesis finances. Uh, On an average Sunday, uh, there's roughly right now over the past two months, there's anywhere between 500 to 650 adults that come uh, between all three gatherings. And there's about 115, 120 kids also between all three services. Uh, In those numbers, in terms of our attendance, on an average month, we have 125 people who give. Uh, When I say people, I mean like a giving unit. So Kyle and I give to Genesis. We are considered a giving unit. We're one family. So there's 125 people on average over the past year and a half that are supporting the mission, the ministry of Genesis. Now, within that 125 people that are uh, actively giving, 24 people Uh, And again, I don't know who these are. I just know the information. 24 people are carrying 80% of the entire monthly budget. Now, we could say, gosh, is that good? Is that bad? Is that typical of churches? I have no idea. But what I do know is this. We can all grow in the grace of giving. This is not manipulation. This is not some emotive thing. This is we can all, as the Bible says, grow in the grace of giving. And here's the beauty of Genesis. As we grow in the grace of giving, we get to give more. That's it. We get to give more. This is not about getting more money so we can get more things and do all of... This is about, God, we want to be generous with everything that you have given to us so that we can show other people just how generous of a God you are. So my invitation or my challenge, if you're not currently giving man, just make a decision to say, Lord, I want to trust you with 1% this coming year. I want to trust you with 5, 10, 20, 50, whatever it is. Make the decision to say, God, I want to trust you. And for those that are actively giving, and I'm not just talking about giving to a church, but giving, being generous with your life, those are the men and women that are going to have stories and testimonies of seeing God at work in their life, provide for their life so that they can continue to be generous. Uh, questions, totally changing topics now, okay? Message two, and this will be quicker. Uh, why do some churches not allow women to be ministers, leaders in the church? As a woman, this, has make, this makes me feel a lesser of a person, but I know I'm just as important uh, as any man in God's eyes. Uh, and the second, uh, what roles are women prohibited from holding within the church body? Uh, are they really not supposed to be pastors uh, and elders? Uh, This is a hard question. Uh, Partly it's a hard question because there's a lot of emotions uh, attached to this, and I clearly do not know uh, all of the women that are currently sitting in this space now. 
But I do know uh, that a lot of women have been hurt, and they've been hurt really bad uh, by churches uh, who have done a horrific job of loving and caring for and treating, encouraging and empowering women to serve in the roles that God has entrusted to them. And so I realize that an apology from me, from someone you don't know, might not carry that much weight. But if you are a woman who has been hurt, uh, hurt badly by the church because of these questions that somehow the church has made you feel like you're not important or somehow you are lesser of a person and not just in the church's eyes but in God's eyes, I just wanted to say I'm sorry. It's, it's not supposed to be like that, but I know for many women that has been the reality. Um, biblical truth, I'd want you to know, men and women are equal in the mind and in the heart of God. We both have great value, worth and significance in the eyes of God, but here's the thing. Our worth and significance does not stem from titles we have or roles we play. It stems from what makes men and women equal What makes us equal is the image that God has given us to bear, namely his image. Because we bear his image, there is equality between men and women. It says in Genesis 1, we've read this over the last couple weeks, God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Clearly, culture makes clear that your worth is found in titles that your worth is found in positions, that your worth is found in the roles that you play, but that's not so with God, not even close. Now, for me, I might have the role or the title of pastor here at Genesis, but that does not make me any more important or significant than anyone else here. I play a certain role, that's it. My role doesn't elevate me like up here, and if you don't have that title or don't have that role, that you're somehow less, somehow not as significant, uh, that's just the role God's given me to play. That's it. But I, I want to remind you that all of us have a role to play, and not one role is bigger or better or more important or more significant or more value in God's eyes. Uh, can't read all of this now, but if you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, it walks through beautifully the body of Christ and the different roles that we have to play, that there is not one role more significant than others. So simply put, both men and women are equal, but we have different roles to play. Uh, I wrote it down in my journal like this. We don't need to have identical roles to prove our equality. Our equality does not come from roles or titles or positions. It comes from the image of God that we bear, uh, and because of that, there can be incredible unity between men and women in the body of Christ. Now, if, again, we're not going to have time to cover all of this, but there are two primary positions that churches hold when it comes to what is a woman's role within the church. Should she be elder or pastor or something different? Uh, and there's two primary roles. There's one role called egalitarian, uh, which just simply means equal or level. Uh, and that role says women can do anything. Uh, if they're called by God and their character is consistent with whatever that role calls for, women are equal. Uh, women are level as, as with, with men. So they can serve in any position regardless whether it's a pastor, whether it's an elder, whether it's a, a preaching pastor, whatever it might be. Then there's a, a second camp called complementarian. 
Uh, and this camp just says, God designed men and women to complement one another as his image bearers. Uh, God's design includes different roles for men and women. Again, men and women are equal. It's not a question of equality, but men and women are designed by God to have different roles, but these roles are meant to complement one another. Now, I'll be the first to admit that women throughout Scripture, as well as just in culture, uh, have not been treated equally. Uh, That's why this question is laced with lots of emotions because at the heart of it is people are made to feel somehow less equal. Uh, Now, why is that? Why have women been made to feel somehow less uh, or not equal? And this is, I'm a guy, so I can say this and I can speak to the other men. That's because we have messed up. We have treated women as less than equal. We have treated women as less than significant. We have treated women because of, however, we have been sinful. And that's why women have been treated both in biblical, t- biblical times as well as in even culture. Men have sought to dominate women, take advantage of women, and treat women as something less. But that's not God's doing. That's not God's design. That's just man being sinful. That's man being selfish. That's not God's will. That's not God's plan. So at Genesis, where does Genesis stand? Are we more egalitarian or are we more complementarian? Again, egalitarian, equal, they can serve any role. Complementarian, God designed men and women to complement one another as image bearers, different roles, uh, but equal. At Genesis, we're complementarian. For me personally, I am complementarian. I believe men and women are absolutely equal, but I believe we are to complement one another with the roles that God's given us. So I totally understand this is not a popular position to hold, but here's the beauty of this for me. I wholeheartedly believe that when both men and women seek to honor God with the roles that God's given them, the body will be healthy. The body will be unified. The body will actually flourish. Clearly, men and women are different. I'm not talking about equality. We're absolutely equal, but we are different in the way that God has designed us and wired us, and we're to take those differences and actually use them to complement one another. Uh, The Trinity, okay? We think of God as a Trinitarian God, God the Father, God the Son, God the, uh, the Spirit. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are equal, but yet we see that each member of the Trinity they have completely different roles uh, in which they submit to one another in those roles. And that, to me, is the beauty of the complementarian position. It's not a question of equality, but it is a question of roles. Uh, and do our roles, are we using our roles to complement one another? Now, uh, I'm going to look at the, the section in 1 Timothy very, very quickly. But the question came in, uh, is this cultural? Uh, It says in 1 Timothy that Paul says, I do not permit women to teach or to have authority over men. Uh, Some would say, well, gosh, the only reason that Paul did that is because of cultural times, Uh, that women were not trained, theologically speaking. So Paul was making a a cultural statement that because women were not trained theologically, therefore I do not not permit women to teach or have positions of authority, and a a teaching position is a position of authority, and that's why. Uh, So when we are looking at, is that just a cultural thing, we have to go back to and say, well, what does Paul actually say? Because he doesn't argue from a perspective of culture, he actually argues from a perspective of creation. 
Uh, and again, I, I wish I had time to share all of these notes with you. Uh, but what Paul is saying uh, in 1 Timothy, let me just read it. Uh, in 1 Timothy 2.12, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. And this is where, gosh, it's, it's hard. What do I do with that? How do we understand and apply that? That's where people say, well, that was just cultural. Well, it's true that women in that culture were not trained, that they were not going to rabbinical schools. Uh, and so you could say, well, women are trained now. They're going to uh, theological training, uh, theological schools and being trained. But again, Paul doesn't make the argument on, because of cultural issues, Paul says in the very next verse, 1 Timothy 2.13, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. Paul's not saying that women are not capable of teaching. Clearly, women are capable of teaching. I'm thankful for incredible women, women who are teachers. He's saying that if you go back to creation and you look back at how God designed men to be men and women to be women and how God assigned specific roles to Adam and how God assigned specific roles to Eve, he's making an argument of creation. And I would say this, creation always transcends culture. He's not making an argument of culture. He's saying, if we want to understand properly why Paul is giving this instruction, he's giving this instruction because of a unique way that God designed men and God designed women, and these roles that he's given us all the way back in creation are to be complementing one another. So I want you to be, hear this. He's not saying that women are not capable of teaching. He's saying, no, God's given them a very unique, specific role as women, and he's given men a very specific uh, unique role as well. Paul to Timothy says leadership in the church is to model leadership in the home and the role that God has given to husband. Husbands is to be spiritual leaders. Uh, and similarly, he has given men that same role within the establishment of the church. Uh, if you read 1 Timothy chapter 3, the very next few verses, Paul articulates elders and pastors, interchangeable words are to be men who have character consistent with that call. Uh, I'll just read a section of it. An elder must be a man whose life is above reproach. He must be faithful to his wife, must exercise self-control, live wisely, have good reputation, must enjoy having guests in his home, and must be able to teach. He must not be a heavy drinker or violent. He must be gentle, not quarrelsome, not love money. He must manage his family well, having children who respect and obey him. For if a man cannot manage his own household, how can he take care of God's church? In many ways, Paul is continuing the model of ministry that Jesus set out. Uh, Jesus, the way that he treated and loved and cared for women was so groundbreaking in first century culture. Uh, but when Jesus, it came time for him to pick 12 apostles, he picked 12 men to serve in that role, not because men are better uh, or more suited for He's He and some people would argue, well, you know what? He only did that because it would have been too controversial and, and too way over the top for him to pick women. Uh, that's why. Well, that's just not true because it says very clearly that Jesus spent time in prayer and discernment. God, who is it that you are calling to serve as these apostles, as these first disciples? And he called 12 men to serve in that role. Now, Again, I totally understand I'm not covering everything that could be said about this. I'm trying to stick with 1 Timothy, that it's not an argument from culture, it's an argument from creation. 
that God created men in a unique way, created women in a unique way, and we are to take those ways that he's created and gifted us to complement one another. Uh, Not equality, we are completely equal, but to complement one another. Uh, So how does this work at Genesis? Uh, What does it mean for Genesis to be a complementarian church? And I just want you to know this. What roles can women play? We believe that they can play, uh, we believe that every opportunity within the church is open for women who are called by God to serve in that role, everything except for one, the role of elder or pastor. That is it. So at Genesis, women serve as deacons, worship leaders, uh, women serve... um, as teachers in like our Genesis U classes, as group leaders, as redemption group leaders, as ministry team leaders, every role is open to women who are called by God with character consistent to that call with one exception. So I believe at Genesis there are many women here that are flourishing in the role that God has called them uh, to serve in, whether that be the deacon or a worship leader or a teacher or a group leader or a ministry team leader. Um, so at Genesis, everything is absolutely open. But the last question was, well, what about First Timothy, where it says that uh, I want women to be modest in their appearance, they should wear decent, appropriate clothing and not draw attention to themselves by the way they fix their hair or wearing gold or pearls or expensive clothes, for women who claim to be devoted to God should make themselves attractive by the good things they do. Well... The question was, that clearly was a cultural thing, doesn't apply to today. And I'd say, well, that's just not true, because I would say character always transcends culture as well. That 1 Timothy chapter 2, the verses I just read, are a challenge to women to say, do not try to find your worth and your beauty and your identity in how you appear, in how you dress, and how you look. Paul is saying to women here, your value, your significance, your worth comes from the image that you bear, not the image that you portray to the world. So this is a character question, and matters of godly character always transcend uh, culture. The challenge for women in that verse was, be godly. Be godly. Don't just settle for the surface appearance, uh, but be godly in who you are and who God's created you to be as a godly woman. Um, I'm going to pray, and um, I'm going to pray specifically that... If anybody is frustrated, uh, because I know I'm not saying everything and not answering every possible question we could on this issue, uh, my heart, and not just this question, but all of these questions that we'd see God. Uh, And I just want to pray as we close today, we close this series and we close with these questions. Uh, Money and uh, women's role in ministry, I know that they're challenging, but I still believe within the challenge we can still see God in the midst of that. Uh, And the way that you and I see God most clearly uh, is through Jesus. Uh, So Father God, I give thanks for the opportunity over these past nine weeks to really wrestle with some really hard and challenging questions. And God, I give thanks that in the midst of all of these questions, we have the opportunity to see you because you reveal yourself to us in your word through these questions. God, I just pray that uh, even today, uh, where there might be frustration or disappointment or even confusion, God, I pray that in these just moments, uh, God, you would just give us peace. Uh, God, you would help us to see you in the midst of these things that might be frustrating to us. God, our heart in all of this was not just to provide answers so we could walk away, 
but our heart, God, was that in seeing you, our lives would be changed because of that. And so, Jesus, I give thanks for uh, the work that you have been doing in me, the work that you've been doing in all of us. And so, Father, in these moments as we close our time today and we close out this series, God, we would just enjoy this time, Jesus, just to worship you, to see you rightly, to see you afresh. I just want to invite you, if you are a Christian, uh, in this time as we close, uh, I know we've talked about challenging things, but I invite you in the midst of these questions we're talking about just to say, Jesus, I see you and I thank you that you have revealed yourself to me, that I can see the Father. And because of that, I want to say thanks. I want to worship you. And if you're here today and you've never made the decision to begin a relationship with God, it begins with Jesus. It begins with making the decision to say Jesus is the way to make me right both now and forever with God the Father. And if you've never made that decision, I invite you to do that today. So as we just respond to to God in worship, uh, we can do that through song. We can do this through communion as well. So if you're a Christian, a follower of Christ, come and celebrate communion today, giving thanks to Jesus for his life, his death, and his resurrection.